Good afternoon. This is KUAF, your public radio station for more than 35 years. This is Ozarks at Large for Wednesday, October 20th, 2021. I'm Kyle Kellams. Ahead this hour, writer and performer Tim Miller, who is in residency this week at the University of Arkansas, working with students and performing here as well. Knowing themselves better, feeling stronger, more ready to face whatever the future brings. And, you know, you, you know, entering, you know, a, a theater space right now after all we've been through, it's quite moving. And just ahead, a snippet from the fifth episode of Undisciplined, the podcast Ozarks at Large's Matthew Moore produces in conjunction with Cree Banton, the head of the University of Arkansas's Department of African and African-American Studies. That's in about four and a half minutes. There will not be a special session of the Arkansas legislature next week to consider income tax cuts and other matters. Governor Asa Hutchinson says there needs to be more time to consider the nuances of his plan to cut income taxes for all income levels in Arkansas. Yesterday, the governor revealed his plan that he says is the basis for what he'd like the legislature to eventually discuss this year. He says Arkansans making less than $22,900 would see an increase of the individual tax credit from $29 to $69. The governor's plan would also combine the low- and middle-income tax tables to focus on a tax break for middle-income households. The top rate would be lowered incrementally from 5.9% to 5.3% by January 1, 2024. The governor says the total results would be significant. If this outline that I have presented today uh, would be adopted, uh, you would see uh, in FY 2024 a total reduction in general revenues of $321 million. That is a very large tax reduction package. Governor Hutchinson says revenue growth for the state continues to be revised upward, and he says the tax cuts will be paid for with recurring revenue and not one-time money. There are 661 new cases of COVID-19 in Arkansas after another 24 hours of testing. The Arkansas Department of Health also counts 19 newly confirmed deaths from the virus and 99 fewer active cases in the state. The 661 new cases in yesterday's report is lower than the new case recorded for the same day last week. And the state of Arkansas is changing the definition of a close contact when it comes to school children needing to quarantine after exposure. The new definition of close contact in a school setting will be modified from the current within six feet for 15 minutes of exposure to within three feet for 15 minutes. Dr. Jose Romero, the state's secretary of health, says the change does not indicate the state is going to pay less attention to the disease. We will not be uh, neglecting to follow the cases that occur after this modification. If the Arkansas Department of Health sees an increase in the number of school cases, we will make a recommendation to the governor that we should go back to the six-foot distance for quarantining. Again, um, uh, this is important also to know that this does not affect daycare centers, child care centers, or higher education. This is only K through 12. Both Dr. Romero and Governor Asa Hutchinson yesterday emphasized the best way to reduce quarantine among schools is to become vaccinated. Dr. Romero also said he expects children from ages 5 to 11 to be able to be vaccinated around the beginning of next month. The Bentonville Film Festival will feature both in-person and virtual events in 2022. The Bentonville Film Foundation is announcing the 2022 event dates will be June 22nd through June 26th, with digital parts of the festival lasting into early July. The festival's board ran the event as a hybrid of in-person and virtual elements this year and reports an 80% increase in global viewership as a result. This week's World Barista Championships in Milan will have Northwest Arkansas representation. Andrea Allen, the owner of Onyx Coffee Lab in Bentonville, will be the sole American in the World Championships from Friday through early next week. There are more than 50 baristas who have qualified for the World Championships this year. And the Spark Foundation is looking for a few more volunteers to help with this month's Hero Half Marathon in Fayetteville. The race is scheduled for Saturday, October 30th. Volunteers are still needed for prep, guiding runners, directing traffic, helping with the award ceremony, and cleanup. You can learn more about the race and the available volunteer positions at givepulse.com, then search for the Hero Half Marathon.
This is Ozarks at Large. The Harlem Renaissance came about during a time of incredible unrest for the black community in America, due in large part to the Red Summer of 1919. Racial terrorism took place all across America, with the most deadly attack happening in Elaine, Arkansas. Out of that time came artistic legends like writer Langston Hughes, singer Billie Holiday, and painter Jacob Lawrence. In the latest episode of Undisciplined, host Karee Banton talks with Sharon Killian about the correlation between reckoning and artistry. Sharon is an artist herself, as well as the president of Art Ventures and the Northwest Arkansas African American Heritage Association. Here's an excerpt from the latest episode produced by Ozarks at Large's Matthew Moore. As we said, you know, your work certainly at Art Ventures and the Northwest Arkansas African American Heritage Association certainly reminds us of the importance of black art as a tool for liberation and for as movement work, right? And this is why it's so important to us and the concerns that we have in the study of African and African American studies. As I mentioned earlier, you've been involved in a number of works here, mostly murals and so on. And I know in recent times, there has been some efforts to deface some of the murals and, you know, things like that that have been painted here. In July, a white pride was painted over the building on Martin Luther King Boulevard in Fayetteville. And um, I know the local artist painted over the sign with a different message that says, Love Unites Us. And that was then painted over with Love Weakens Us. And so I'm wanting to, you know, for you to talk about your involvement with the series of murals across Northwest Arkansas and the post-George Floyd summer uprisings. And what do you think it represents for the Northwest Arkansas community? I gathered a group of young folk and artists and we did a mural at what I call the protest corner on Dixon and College. And it has still not been defaced. You know, we actually thought it could be at some point. It did generate a variety of uh, outlook for and against, you know, Black Lives Matter, All Lives Matter and all that. But it hasn't been defaced. And that's a good thing, I think. It says something. It's very complicated because the church across the parking lot, St. Paul's, had a Black Lives Matter banner ripped up more than once, I think. And just across the way, they haven't done anything to it. Nothing so far has happened. It's still beautiful and bright. And lots of different people are coming to take pictures. Families are taking pictures in front of it. And I'm glad that they're drawn to it. You know, of course, we used resource materials, but the basis for the, the, that mural are people who, are, who live here and have lived in the community. I'm not really sure how to parse that. Does it have anything to do with the fact that it, it was Black people who were leading that charge to put that up and maybe there's some concern? I don't know. I believe the murals that you were talking about on MLK were put up by an artist who was, I don't know if I could say this person is white, identifying. All I can tell you about that part is that I really don't know who, what, when, I don't think they figured it out. But I do know that people came into town and drove, you know, drove their their, uh, pickup trucks up and down MLK, you know, uh, with the Confederate flag flying up in there, with the slave flag, as I call it, flying big and bright. You know, and I think it's supposed to be a real true insult, you know, especially since they changed the name from Sixth Street to MLK. We keep trying to make change, right? There have been other murals of black culture and other cultures around, and there have been many different kinds of controversies, like, for instance, for the series of uh, artworks that come into the gallery for, say, Black History Month, every one of those pieces are done by black artists. So it's not like an ally kind of thing or somebody who likes black skin or likes to paint black skin. It's they're all by black artists because there's a certain thing about authenticity that is important to me and I think important to people. So if you're there and you can do it, then that's what that's what we want. I think that, um, you know, everybody doesn't feel that way. And I think some of that happens when you can't find enough people in the community, but you just, you have to keep looking because we are here. 
We are either here among you, or you might have to go looking around a little bit. Go a little bit farther away, because really, it's not as if you're not connected anyway. There are not enough of us, perhaps, but you've got to keep working at it. What are your feelings about the juxtaposition of black art alongside, you know, I know you, you, the, you've spoke about the work you've done with the cemetery and the black cemeteries right next to the Confederate cemetery. So oh, I'm wondering, one, yes. yeah, what, what are your feelings about the juxtaposition of black art alongside co Confederate memorials or, you know, black lightness or you know, sculptures or anything like that? being used as a replacement for that kind of, um, you know, historical memorials? Well, when we talk about the historical memorials of the Confederacy, you know, they're losers, right? And they lost, and they're wrong. And they're trying to glorify this negative, hateful, barbaric practice, okay? And it's never something that should have been glorified and, and putting up the fancy guys in their quote unquote fancy, you know, uniforms to perpetuate a lie. So it's not like it's real. So take it down. And, and as a matter of fact, they were put up, a lot of them were put up to scare me. Okay. They were put up to say white supremacy is the thing. Okay. And it is right. Well, no. So they need to come down. And actually, the fact of the matter is, if replacing it with a black person on a horse, replacing it with a reflection of black is more like the truth. Because while you were whipping my back, okay, I was building this place. The truth of the matter is, I stand tall. And if you want to put up a statue to memorialize power, mine goes up not your loser statue. Did you know that a lot of these statues were placed in places that were actually lynching places? Mm -hmm. Did you hear that? Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Take it down, you know. <laughs> so my final question for you, are you optimistic that we will see more of this kind of flowering of art in Northwest Arkansas, the region and the nation? I'm always concerned that it's going to go away the next minute. I really am. I... I hope it doesn't, but it's not like it's the first time, you know. We're trying to keep the momentum up, but it's not only up to us. Uh, there's a lot of work for white society to do, to be truthful and to accept the fact that we're equals. We've been trying for so long, you know, I always am I'm concerned that it's not going to, that we're going to, it's going to go away. I'm always concerned it's going to go away. I, and I tend to be a very optimistic person, you know. <laughs> <laughs> You can listen to this entire conversation and every episode of Undiscipline wherever you get your podcasts. This is Ozarks at Large. How do you take a local movement and make it global? I'd like to challenge you to start looking at and acknowledge the Catadores and other invisible superheroes from your city. Try to see the world as one without boundaries or frontiers. Turning ideas into action. That's next time on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. The TED Radio Hour, Sunday afternoon at 1 on KUAF and streaming through your smart speaker when you ask it to please play KUAF. A statewide nonprofit group says more struggles lie ahead to ensure better outcomes for families in the state. Arkansas Advocates for Children and Families held its annual Friends of Children Award Ceremony yesterday in Little Rock. Executive Director Rich Huddleston says the legislative session that just ended was one of the most challenging his organization has ever seen. There was a legislative backlash against the protests, against racism, and efforts to stop uh, police violence um, against communities of color, um, and, um, and against uh, the uh, national call for greater equity. There were unprecedented attacks on voting rights because of how the national elections turned out. And there was a continued backlash against poor people and safety net programs uh, by, uh, by certain segments of the legislature. 
Huddleston says the group is now focusing on an upcoming special session aimed at lowering taxes. One honoree at the event was Health Secretary Dr. Jose Romero, who says the award came as a surprise. I'm blessed because I've had the opportunity to impact on so many lives, not just the 3.1 million Arkansans that are here, that through my work as uh, Secretary of Health and Director of the Arkansas Department of Health, but also through my work through ACIP, the CDC, um, I hope I've been able to make small changes uh, for their uh, betterment. Also honored at the awards banquet, Joanne Nally, Director of Arkansas State University Childhood Services, and Rhonda Sanders, CEO of the Arkansas Food Bank. And, yes, my wife is the Northwest Arkansas Director for Arkansas Advocates for Children and Families, but I had nothing to do with the assigning, writing, or editing of this story. This is Ozarks at Large. Arkansas Community Foundation partners with attorneys, CPAs, and other financial advisors to help their clients achieve philanthropic goals and maximize tax savings. This process can be easy, flexible, and efficient. ARCF.org slash advise for more information. Arkansas Senior Health Insurance Information Program offers free, confidential, unbiased advice for those receiving or about to receive Medicare and the Part D drug plan. Open enrollment runs through December 7th. ARSHIP can help individuals make the correct decision about their health care needs, including the Part D drug plan. Help and information is available at 1-800-224-6330. That's one 800 224-6330. This week, Tim Miller is in residency at the University of Arkansas. Miller is the creator of several performance art pieces, the author of several books, including his latest, A Body in the O, in which he writes about gender, immigration, homophobia, and censorship. Miller was one of four artists denied and approved National Endowment of the Arts Fellowship in 1990. He and the other artists who became known as the NEA4, challenged that denial all the way to the United States Supreme Court. Miller is working with students at the U of A this week and helping them create their own stories. Last night, he performed at Pearl's Books in downtown Fayetteville, and he'll have a one-person show tomorrow night at 8 at Nadine Baum Studios in Fayetteville. Yesterday afternoon, he came to the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio to talk with us about his career, his advocacy, and the joys of a busy, week-long residency at a university. Right now, after 18 months of people not doing residencies and not having visiting artists, and for me not being in the studio and not performing and not, you know, getting to go to a wonderful new Pearl's bookstore and and uh, and see what's happening there and perform and read there, it's all really a pleasure. Um, but yeah, no, it's a good juicy one, but it's quite typical, you know, hopefully now as we're getting back in person to things. It's a quite a typical residency week at a university for me, working every day for hours with the students, encouraging their voices, bringing their stories, their performances forward, uh, me performing at least one night, and in this case, you know, the two nights while I'm in Fayetteville at, at uh, the university performing, and then one, one, uh, one night at Pearl's Books. So it's, it's a fun week. I want to talk ask you some more about working with students here in a minute, but let's talk about the performance that you'll have. As you mentioned, you were at Pearl's Books last night, but then there's also the Thursday night performance on campus. What what can we expect? Well, I'll, I'll perform probably, it'll be kind of a performance and also a little bit of a talk. I'll probably perform three or four excerpts from pieces, do a little talk in between, partly just so that it's it's low-key and they're they're loading in the play Marisol this week, so it's it needs to be quite simple technically. Uh, but with that, it's a format I really like. It's sort of, a, it's the this beautiful easy flow between performance sections that I, I love to do and kind of setting them up in a nice way. So it's, it's, a, it's a format I actually really, really enjoy. It also means I don't have to do a technical rehearsal, which um, I, I never mind missing. Um, because that's, you know, it's, it's labor intensive also for the, the program and the students. So it'll be a fun piece, kind of, I'm still kind of considering what I'm going to do and I'm going to, you know, sense things at 
how things go um, at Pearl's Books, and then but I'll do some pieces that to me feel the most just urgent and things I'm wanting to share with the community. Or I've never I've never been um, um, to Fayetteville before, so it will be my first performance in Arkansas. All right, and which means there's only four states I haven't performed in now. So it's I have to ask then what are those? Yes, four? of course, um, South Dakota. Mississippi, where I've been too many times but have never performed, um, Wyoming, and um, what's the fourth one? I work in the South a lot, so I've got that all covered. Um, there's a fourth one, but sure. I forget what I, it, I forget <laughs> what it is right now. So, oh, we, a weird one, New Hampshire. Oh, which I've you know performed in every state around New Hampshire a zillion times, but not New Hampshire. Well, New Hampshire's so. small. I mean, you know. It's pretty much I would get invited to Dartmouth, I think, and that would be it, and that just hasn't happened. So, Lebanon, I've been to Lebanon, New Hampshire in January. Don't go in January. Yeah. That's no, how. I do a lot of that kind of traveling. So You're still thinking about what you'll do here, um, meaning that you might pick from different Just which material yeah. I'll, I'll pick. I'll probably do – I want to do some brand you know, stuff that's quite new, but also some kind of things that marks some of my crucial – you know culture war moments of my struggles and Supreme Court case and uh, all the work I did around marriage equality in those years. I was sort of one of the main artists doing work around for that decade around marriage equality during the, you know, the battle till we got um, um, equality of of civil marriage in this country now, you know, many, several years ago. Um, But that was a big, big subject for me, partly because my, my, now husband, and we've been together for 27 years, but we were really being forced to leave the country because he's Australian and we couldn't do what a, any straight couple who never even met who could get a fiancé green card. And, you go to Vegas. Well, yeah, you get yeah. married and then literally the next day would be recognized by the federal government. And it took a Supreme Court decision in 2013 for us to finally do that. And, You've mentioned marriage equality. You've also, and as you mentioned, your husband is Australian. You've touched on uh, immigration as well. Yeah, this was sort of my way of engaging the the two you know two of the hot button endless issues in our country around um, you know both you know lesbian and gay civil rights and LGBTQ larger community civil rights and immigration and the marriage equality which 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 is is at this point settled law. I don't think there's even with the current um, disaster of a Supreme Court we have. I don't think I don't think that's going to get revisited. Um, I think we're pretty we're pretty done with that, which to me is just such a relief because it's people like weddings. Weddings are fun, and like the weddings are good for a zillion businesses and and uh, good for human human life. Gives more stability to the dogs we all love. So. <laughs> right. So yeah. So I want to kind of make sure I touch on all those materials because partly that's of interest to the students. Also, what is it to be a artist engaged with society? An artist who's also been attacked. You know, is attacked by the federal government and defunded by the National Endowment for the Arts and took a case to the U.S. Supreme Court around that all through the 90s. So that's, I don't know if I'm going to perform any of the work around that, but I'll certainly talk about it because it's of interest to the students of what what happens when theater gets dragged onto the floor of the House of Representatives and and my work mischaracterized and assault and attacked. And Well, just to catch some listeners up, you were what some people have to have one of the NEA four, right. you were given an NEA grant, but then a member of the Bush administration picked you and three other, I believe, all individual artists out and said, "No, yeah, exactly. we're not going to fund." And and that was what you you won that, and it went all the way to the Supreme Court. Right, we won our grant back. We did lo- the the larger issue was right. lost, which was that that the federal government could censor artists for a federal funding, that that was not, they did not consider that protected protected speech because it was about, you know, being rewarded. Um, and that this general notion of standards of decency was, you know, was declared constitutional, that that was a criterion. We got our grants back. It was right. just because that- And court costs, right? And court costs. We won all that. But then the, the, uh, the issue not related to us, but to the National Endowment generally, was not a big win. So and the NEA, most people perceive we won that right. just because we did get our grants back. And the NEA since has not given money to individual artists? No, that- no, except for writers. Right. Yeah, it's like, which is bizarre since writers are often real <laughs> troublemakers, um, but they they still do um, literature fellowships. But that's it. All the other um, disciplines are no longer. In a weird 
way, and only someone who wasn't involved in this could think this, that's a weird backhanded compliment about theater and live performance, that that somehow is more uh, visceral or more, quote, using air quotes, dangerous? There's that. I think, you know, freedom of... um Freedom of speech and, and publishing and, and writing is so inscribed in, in case law and stuff that it's where we don't have a comparable, you know, all the instances of books being burned in the United States or Allen Ginsberg's howl being thrown in Boston Harbor and right. kind of thing, the little Tea Party reference, you know, the revolutionary Tea Party war, period. Um, but, but I, you know, I, I know what you mean, and I, I feel that too. It was partly that perform. it meant actually that what happens in theaters um, is supercharged and important and actually can uh, ruffle the corridor, the, cor- the corduroys and the corridors of power. So, when well, one thing I find inter- I love about your work is that it's not chronological. Like your first piece was about this part of your life, and then the second, the next, the next, the next. You keep finding things in your life that are relevant to the new work and relevant to the time in which it's produced. Right. Well, like with the, my most recent piece called Rooted, which is really about the day the Supreme Court declared marriage equality under federal law. And Alistair and I got married that very morning in New York City and it was a very exciting day to be, you know, waiting for a Supreme Court decision. Um, but at that moment, what was exciting to me was it was the first marriage license in my family since 1865. My great-great-grandfather got married in New York State right when he got back from um, – his years with the Army of the Potomac in the Civil War to central New York. And so suddenly, I, and I have their marriage license, mm-hmm. so suddenly I have my great-great-grandparents' marriage license from New York State in 1865 and ours in 2013. And rubbing those two documents together and seeing what sparks flew was kind of the idea for that piece. So in a way, it was both the most current thing and also reaching me to my furthest family um, lineage somehow of my, at that point, only 22-year-old great-great-grandfather back from four years in the Union Army. And, and, you know, he was a Quaker abolitionist and he's, you know, very, you know, someone I really feel in connection with of social justice and also putting his life on the line and was severely wounded and barely survived. And so he's someone I'm very feel quite connected to. I don't really know what he would make of me. Uh, but 160 years is yeah, hard to bridge. Exactly. Right? Yeah. But that, but that's sort of a fun, it was both the most performing, the most current thing in my life of literally my marriage and then Alistair's green card interview. It's a, it's good, but I'll probably perform that Thursday because I think it's a, it's quite a fun piece and marriage stories are really fun because <laughs> people, a lot of people relate to it because they've, they've usually something funny happens. Yes. <laughs> when you talk with students about thinking about their lives and, and interacting with society, what sort of things do you encourage them to think about or practice or engage in? Well, I, I you know, having just left the studio 20 minutes ago before I came to your the, the, the radio studio, um, my general goal is to encourage them to dig deep, to think of moments, things that, first of all, things they really care about, which is a core creative impulse always, what really matters to me. But for me especially... What are things that that um, you know? I have a bit of an agenda with this. I like I like privileging moments of where they challenged authority, confronted injustice. It was part of a prompt yesterday, um, and those were some beautiful stories about times they spoke up, took a chance, became who they're supposed to be, in this beautiful unfolding journey in our lives of being true to ourselves, which is to me really really important. Um, today they were really. Looking at almost their personal autoethnography of their their families and who they come from, how they see their bodies, what the stories of their bodies are, and it tends to pull very, very intimate, rich, and powerful pieces forward as it did today. Like thirty five minutes of performance, you know, kind of each person doing a you know about a three minute piece that was just all really exquisite and surprising, and whole new ways of see what seeing what it is to be a human being, what we worry about, what we care about what scares us, what fills us with hope, and a lot of generosity. It's, their, their pieces were really beautiful. So that's, you know, what I want them to do is to come out of the week knowing themselves better, feeling stronger, more ready to face whatever the future brings. And, you know, you, you know entering, you know, a, a theater space right now after all we've been through, it's quite moving and quite strong, you know, even just as we were talking, just being back in – with the microphones face in front face. of us, face to face, talking right now, it's all, 
we don't take it for granted yet. I don't know. I think we won't for quite a while. No, I'm, I'm not sure we ever. Hopefully it we may, never. It may not change. At least people, you know, maybe children will, it'll be replaced by other things. But I think for adults, this has been such an uncanny period. Um, and this is my second global pandemic with, you know, having been a young person and a young gay person mm-hmm. during the AIDS pandemic. And, and you know, clearly those years in New York City for me where I was, which was, of course, the front of the front lines, um, has changed my entire life and changed everything about how I see the world, see my country, see um, what my social justice job is. So I, I can imagine – COVID is going to be similar to that for the rest of my life. I imagine it's interesting. You're a, a boomer, born in the late yeah, 50s. 1958. And so many of the students you talk to, gosh, I guess many of them are not are born in the 2000s. They're, these are all grad students. So okay. They're probably, but for undergrads, certainly, they're all yeah. born. Incoming freshmen, I think, are born in 2003 this fall. So <laughs> wow. they've been all post-new century for a couple of years. So... so there's something that happens in that space when you're talking with them and working with them that unifies you. But then there's also that gap of, yeah, you know, <laughs> what you've experienced just by being right. in your early 60s and them being 20s or 30s. Well, but that's in some ways, I think that was for me in New York City being which almost the exact same age difference. I was sort of obsessed with the poet Allen Ginsberg when I got to the Lower East Side of Manhattan and I lived on a block from him, and I would literally stalk him, and I'd follow him around. And partly, you know, one of our most important, you know, poetic voices, you know, Ginsburg and Whitman are just these giants of American letters, and and to be around, and also politics and social engagements. And so for me to get, I wanted to have as much. I was nineteen when I moved to New York City, so it was oh, that wow. same kind of relationship. And he was probably in his early sixties. Uh, actually, was maybe a little younger than that. He was born in 1925, so um, he was—he seemed like he was a thousand years old. Um, so I think there's that hunger and urgency. I think for generational transfer and for things. At this point, it's the most important thing I can do. You know, I've gotten to perform all over the world, all over this country, and have published five books. I've gotten to say a lot of what I want to say. And I, there's more I want to say, and I'll do my share of it this week. But more important to me is is what I can energize and connect with and embolden in, in younger artists. Finally, I mean, you have examined your life. You've dug into your life. You've, you've brought it to us. Are you excited for what will happen for you between now and, say, age 90? God willing. <laughs> Inshallah. <laughs> so, um I am. I'm, I'm hopeful. I mean, I would like to get old. I would like to, you know, um, get to do that. I don't care. You know, I, I had so many friends die young in those horror years in the 80s in New York City. And um, so I've, I've, it's all been frosting in a way that I was not, you know, hit by that and easily could have been and easily could have died at 25. So I'm, you know, incredibly and daily grateful for that. But I would like to get – I think I'd be a super good, really old person, um, unlike a, a um, youthfully spry 63-year-old. <laughs> um, but I hope so. And it, it, I'd like to get to learn those lessons, including the complicated ones of, of – Decline. You know, I, I love Philip Roth's novels and and admit all his complexity. But I, you know, his third act of, as a writer is writing basically about male decline, and yeah. I find those those novels and there's a half dozen of them all really interesting and and beautiful. And I think to write honestly about um, what it is to get older and to feel your life, you know, going away is one of the most important lessons about being human. So I would like to get to perform more more of that. And my last piece, Rooted, was already in some ways beginning to do that, which is uh, in my most recent book called A Body in the O, which in this case is the O of the Hollywood, Hollywood sign. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming. To yeah, this was Hill a pleasure. And for coming to KUAF. And I look forward to hearing about your performances in – Pierre, South Dakota, and Lebanon, New Hampshire. Oh, there you go. <laughs> it probably it might be Pierre. Probably a university town, but we'll see. Is but there one in Pierre? I bet there is. I'm sure there's. God, I've never, I've never, I've never even set foot in South Dakota, but yeah, someday. So, well, thank you. Good, good, good knowledge of capitals. <laughs> Tim Miller, thank you so much. Thanks a lot.
Tim Miller is a performer, creator, activist, dog lover, and author. He's in residency at the University of Arkansas this week. He will perform a free one-person show tomorrow night at 8 in Nadine Baum Studios in downtown Fayetteville. He was at Pearl's Books in Fayetteville last night. We talked to him yesterday afternoon in the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio. And about that, we are talking to guests in person again. Our microphones set up for safe distancing, and all guests wear masks in our common areas at KUAF, like the lobby. Guests and interviewers alike are fully vaccinated, and that we are in agreement on the protocols of our conversations before those conversations begin. This is Ozarks at Large. KUAF is supported by Hendricks College, offering engaged learning by linking classrooms to the world and developing career skills throughout its curriculum. Hendricks graduates pursue medical, law, and other advanced degrees, preparing students to lead lives of accomplishment. Hendricks.edu slash connect for more information. Guitarist, singer, songwriter Gary Clark Jr. comes to the Walmart Amp on Saturday, October 23rd. Fusing blues, rock and soul music with elements of hip-hop, Clark's most recent release, This Land, earned three Grammy Awards, including Best Contemporary Blues Album. Tickets available at amptickets.com or 443-5600. A couple of early November events taking place at the Fayetteville Public Library we want to get on your calendar. An ADA compliance panel will take place November 2nd at 2 in the afternoon. The panel discussion will address how entrepreneurs can learn more about better complying with the Americans with Disability Act standards. Registration is required. You can find out more at faylib.org. Another panel discussion, Being Trans and Gender Nonconforming in Northwest Arkansas, is set for November 6th. That one, too, at 2 p.m. It's in partnership with the University of Arkansas Multicultural Center, and panelists will discuss gender identity, featuring the voices of local gender nonconforming individuals and a local health care provider. Registration also required. Again, you can learn much more about these two panel discussions and much more going on at the Fayetteville Public Library at faylib.org. I'm Tanya Mosley. You may know Yosemite National Park for its striking granite cliffs and ancient sequoia trees. But for many years, nestled within that stunning scenery was the hidden history of the hundreds of Chinese immigrants who helped develop the park. A new exhibit acknowledges that history next time on Here and Now. Here and Now begins at 1 this afternoon on KUAF and on KUAF.com. This is Ozarks at Large. This month, the Food and Drug Administration released voluntary new sodium levels the FDA would like food manufacturers to adopt. Accompanying the new suggested lower levels of sodium in foods was this explanation. Lowering sodium levels in the food supply would reduce risk of hypertension, heart disease, stroke, heart attack, and death in addition to saving billions of dollars in health care costs over the next decade. We decided to reach out to Hannah Nolan, a dietitian with Mercy Diabetes and Nutrition Center, to get a better understanding about the recommendations, salt, and our health. It can be very hard sometimes to, even if you can figure out the amount, whether to know if that's high or low um, compared to your daily amount that's needed. So um, it is something that can be rather difficult to, to kind of gauge. All right, what do you tell your clients when they're concerned about uh, eating too much sodium? Yeah, well, I think the first step is to watch how much you're putting into your foods. Um, that's an easy way to kind of reduce the amount of sodium. One teaspoon of sodium is actually equivalent to the daily recommended amount of sodium that a person should take. So if you are shaking quite a bit of salt onto your chips or your potatoes, then um, you should know that you could be getting close to that daily requ- recommended intake. Wait, I want to make sure I got this right. One teaspoon? Yes. If you look at a teaspoon, it doesn't look like it, and that's probably a level teaspoon at <laughs> that. Right, yes, yes. So the recommended amount per day is 2,300 milligrams, and the average American takes in over 3,000 milligrams. I remember a conversation I had years ago with someone, and I said, well, I never eat, I never take in salt because I never salt any of my food, and then they encouraged me to look at, you know, the containers of food that were in my cabinet or in my refrigerator, and Mm -hmm. you can take in a lot without even realizing it. 
absolutely. And sodium is used not just for flavoring, but also for preserving, which is part of the reason why the processed foods are typically so high in sodium, because they are preserving whatever the food is um, that's in the package. So um, that's why a lot of the restaurants and processed food in the grocery stores tends to be quite a bit higher. Yeah, that's the other thing. And we're not talking just about what you buy at a grocery store. We're also talking about what you might get at a restaurant. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of the restaurants now, if they're chain restaurants, unfortunately, they're not preparing the food there at the restaurant. They're getting it, you know, shipped in, already prepared and frozen. Um, So it will have quite a bit more of those preservatives in them. And I'm guessing it doesn't work this way. If I have... I don't know, a thousand milligrams on Monday, it's not okay then to up it to 4,000 <laughs> or 3,700 on Tuesday. So I average out for two days the, the okay That's amount. right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So it doesn't roll over. That's not really the way nutrition works. So our bodies are not um, designed to operate like that. So it's not so much of um, having less one day and more the next. It's rather just a consistent amount um, that's, you know, relatively lower, hopefully around 2,300 per day. I will say that um, a lot of times, you know, it is something that even people that are typically aware of sodium in products, it's just very hard to find, um, you know, like lower sodium or sodium-free options in the grocery store. So I think that um, the FDA is hoping that by encouraging this, this is not a mandatory, um, you know, regulation by any means, but it's just kind of encouraging the manufacturers um, because we know that there's a limited number of manufacturers that supply quite a bit, most of the American diet, um, whether it's through, you know, the grocery stores or through um, restaurants. And so they're just encouraging some of those bigger manufacturers to start um, really kind of cutting down to help the American people uh, with trying to assist in their lower sodium diets. All right, I'm going to try one more escape clause here, Hannah. Um, Let's say I take in too much sodium on Tuesday, but I run five miles on Wednesday. Does that negate any of the sodium intake from the previous day? No, that's not necessarily how sodium works. If you were um, trying to, you know, lose weight, that might be helpful. But um, sodium more has to do with your blood pressure and um, kind of your bloodstream. And so unfortunately, that would not be be helpful. (laughs) Hannah Nolan is a dietitian with Mercy Diabetes and Nutrition Center. We spoke last week. Just ahead, our next foray into the University of Arkansas's history with Charlie Allison. This time, how Latino and Latina students, faculty, and staff have helped shape the U of A. The University of Arkansas continues to observe its sesquicentennial and Ozarks at Large doing its part to commemorate the first 150 years of the U of A. Charlie Allison, the executive editor at University Relations at the University of Arkansas, continues for us his tour through the school's history. In the early 1920s, Raul Afordo Añanos was attending the University of Chicago. He had come from Peru to study medicine, but the loud, busy streets of Chicago and its enormous, cavernous buildings were not to his liking. In an almanac of universities, Raoul came across a description of the University of Arkansas. He later told a U of A publicist, quote, The almanac said the school was a good one, that the climate was good, that there were mountains, the expenses were low, and so I came. <laughs> I like this town, he said. The mountains were not quite as rugged as the Andes surrounding his hometown of Ayacucho, but the rolling residential streets of Fayetteville reminded him of home. He was, as far as I've found so far, the first student of Latin American heritage to attend the university. He was only here in Fayetteville for a semester and then transferred to the university's School of Medicine in Little Rock. He became a member of Chi Zeta Chi, the medical fraternity. I lost track of him there and assume he returned to Peru at some point. During the 1920s and 1930s, students of Latin American or Spanish heritage found their way to the university. But in the early 1940s, the university's board of trustees voted to offer six scholarships to, quote, brilliant and outstanding students from Central and South American countries. About a decade later, the College of Agriculture began an international agricultural mission to Panama in 1951, or 70 years ago this year. 
It was the first time a public research university in the United States had established this kind of mission. The college sent two dozen researchers and faculty members to Panama, led by Professor Paul Noland, to establish a teaching, research, and extension program similar to the U.S. Extension Service model. The program helped stimulate the growth of Panama's agriculture, but also developed a strong connection between the Panamanians and the Arkansans, a relationship that grew wider to include academic exchanges, shared research, and economic cooperation. Among the Panamanian students who came to the university were two brothers, Ricardo and Mario Martinelli, who each earned a Bachelor of Science in Business Administration in 1973 and 1974, respectively. They returned to Panama, and Ricardo Martinelli went into banking initially, and then became an entrepreneur before running for office and being elected President of Panama in 2009. The high growth in Latino enrollment during the last two decades, however, resulted not from international exchange students, but rather from Arkansas graduates who were of Hispanic or Latino heritage. Beginning in the 1990s, Hispanic and Latino families began moving to Arkansas for jobs in the growing Northwest Arkansas economy. By about 2005, the sons and daughters of these families began reaching college age in significant numbers. In many instances, though, these sons and daughters were undocumented often because their parents had entered the country without obtaining a proper visa or work permit. That situation made the college price tag significantly more costly because the state of Arkansas deemed undocumented students to be ineligible for in-state tuition. Similarly, state-sponsored scholarships, such as the Arkansas Challenge Scholarship, would not be offered to them for the same reason. Nevertheless, programs at the university began recruiting Latino students. The Limke Project, created by the Journalism Department, brought Latino and Marshallese high school students to campus on a series of Saturdays, and they learned the basics of reporting and broadcasting through hands-on lessons, publishing their own paper by the end of the project. The Office of Admissions began a campus day, inviting more than 200 ninth and 10th grade students to campus to learn about the academic programs available, what life is like on campus, and to meet student leaders and faculty. In 2010, at the national level, Congress nearly approved the Deferred Action for Children Arrivals Act, better known as the Dreamers Act. It was intended to allow children brought to the United States without proper documentation to pursue education at colleges and universities or to serve in the military without threat of deportation and to provide a path for them to seek resident status or citizenship. The bill had bipartisan support and passed the U.S. House of Representatives but failed in the Senate by five votes. Later that same year, Jonathan Chavez, a music major at the university at that time, took a bus to Florida during the winter break to visit his mother for Christmas. When he arrived, however, he was detained by immigration officials. Chavez had been born in Peru, was undocumented, and faced deportation back to his native country, one which he hadn't seen in nearly a decade. His parents had brought him to America when he was 13 years old. They came legally on a tourist visa when they moved their family to the United States. The family settled in Rogers, where Chavez attended junior high and high school, graduating with a 4.0 GPA. His family members obtained green cards, but due to a mix-up as Chavez turned 18, he was unable to get a green card, leaving him in immigration limbo. At the university, he became a member of the Honors College and studied vocal music, maintaining a 3.8 GPA through his first three years. He joined the Christ of Campus student organization and worked as a counselor at Camp War Eagle during the summers. Pretty typical kid. Chavez did not fit the stereotyped images of people trying to take jobs away from Americans or that of the Desperado cartel member trying to smuggle drugs. Yet there he sat in a detention facility in Fort Lauderdale, waiting for the Christmas holiday and all of January while the university classes resumed without him. University of Arkansas officials made a plea to the Office of Homeland Security to release Chavez on bond, and a social media campaign started by friends began drawing national publicity to his detention. He was eventually released on a $1,000 bond in February of 2011. Elizabeth Young, then a U of A law professor steeped in immigration law, took on his representation. Against big odds, Chavez finished his college classes, graduated with honors in 2011, and obtained a work permit in 2012 after President Barack Obama authorized the DACA program. Since then, the Arkansas General Assembly passed an act that allows undocumented students who have lived in Arkansas for a set period of time 
to pay in-state tuition. Over the last two decades, the number of Latino and Latina students at the University of Arkansas has increased 12-fold. In fact, the percentage of Hispanic students among the overall student population, now 9.7%, is higher than the percentage of Hispanic residents among the overall Arkansas population by two percentage points. It's a pretty amazing feat, and it provides a nice bookend for the success story of two Peruvians, Raul Afordo Ananos back in 1922 and Jonathan Chavez more than 90 years later. Charlie Allison is executive editor at University Relations at the University of Arkansas. Most Wednesdays, he's helping us observe the sesquicentennial of the University of Arkansas. There are other observations, of course, and you can learn about them at uark.150.edu. In Montana, people working in local health departments are resigning or being forced out. Meanwhile, hospitals are seeing a record number of patients with COVID. In some cases, people are much more afraid of their perceived government overreach than they are of of the virus. How pandemic politics and misinformation are causing people to leave their jobs. This afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. All Things Considered. This afternoon from 3 until 6 on KUAF. And you can listen to KUAF anytime, anywhere with the free KUAF app. On tomorrow's Ozarks at Large, well, it's fall. It's October. Time for a corn maze. So we have a barn chute slide. So it's two 100-foot uh, tracks um, that you get on an inner tube with a hard bottom. We soap it up. Inner tubes, a corn maze, pumpkin-flavored donuts, and more on an autumnal Ozarks at Large tomorrow at noon and 7 and on your schedule when you subscribe to the free Ozarks at Large podcast through any of the major podcast distributors. Ozarks at Large is underwritten, in part, by the Walton Family Charitable Support Foundation. KUAF is supported by Pack Rat Outdoor Center in Fayetteville, serving Northwest Arkansas since 1973 with adventure gear and clothing for hiking, kayaking, and more. Pack Rat carries dog packs, life vests, and accessories for the furry family member, too. Dedicated to conservation and waste reduction, packratoc.com for online shopping, shipping, or curbside pickup. This is 91.3 KUAF. Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Rogers, and Lavaca. KUAF is a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas, and Ozarks at Large is a production of KUAF. Contributors today included Matthew Moore, and Charlie Allison with University Relations at the University of Arkansas. Our theme is titled First Hurrah. It is written and performed by Daryl Sean. You can find out more about Daryl and his music by putting his name into a search engine, of course. And most weekday afternoons at 4 o'clock our time, you can find him performing live, sometimes taking requests on his Facebook and Instagram feeds. You can sign up as well for the free Ozarks at Large KUAF email newsletter. We put it together, I say we, Sherry Ottaviano, our membership director, puts it together every single weekday. If you subscribe, you'll get a Monday through Friday afternoon email landing in your inbox. It will tell you what was on the show that day, give you some other tidbits of information, and provide links, direct links, so you can click through and listen to that interview story or feature right then, or share it with people you know and love. To sign up, For the Ozarks at Large KUAF email newsletter, just go to KUAF.com. You can also find past full editions of our show, as well as individual stories and interviews at OzarksAtLarge.com. We'll be with you tomorrow, noon and 7, for a brand new Thursday edition of Ozarks at Large. From the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio at the Carver Center for Public Radio, I'm Kyle Kellams. Take care of yourself. We'll talk again soon.